You're listening to a message from Christian Believers United. CBU equips God's people for ministry through offering spirit-empowered Bible teaching conferences and retreats. Please visit us online at www.cbu.org to learn more about how you can be involved. While you're there, be sure to browse our online library of sermons to find more relevant Bible-based teaching. In the meantime, enjoy this message, and we look forward to seeing you at a conference or seminar soon. Well, good afternoon. It is great to be with you as we continue exploring our theme, a clear word for uncertain times. As I have been meditating upon this theme, there there's so many different thoughts about this idea of a clear word and so many different thoughts about the idea of uncertain times. Now, there's an ancient Chinese curse that says, may you live in interesting times. <laughs> now, I guess that the opposite of interesting times is like boring times or times of constancy, times of permanence, times where there's not much transition or change. And I don't know what you're like, but some there are those days where I yearn for the simplicity of being able to listen to the daffodils grow. Um, but if we study the Bible at all, we see that God always has his people poised to play roles of influence at times of social upheaval. You can think about Abraham and the transition that he had to make from Ur to the promised land. You can think about Moses. His career was made by leaving, leading God's people through transition. You can think about Joshua, who made his career in this conquest of the promised land. These guys are in the Bible because they lived in tumultuous times. God met them and showed up powerfully for them and with them at that time. You can think about David stepping into a leadership role when his nation was in crisis. You can think about Nehemiah leaving the comfort of serving the king wine so that he could go and help rebuild his nation. Rather than just taking the comfortable road of sipping pina coladas on the coast, these guys were all engaged with hearing the word of God, what was God saying at the moment, and then being men and women of action. And so as we think about this, we're thinking about clear words and, and uncertain times. And when I think about clear, you know, sometimes I, I get truth by looking at the opposite of things. If you want to understand light, study darkness sometimes. And so what's the opposite of a clear word? Perhaps an ambiguous word. Ambiguous means open to interpretation, having double meaning, unclear, inexact, a choice between different alternatives. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard someone give an ambiguous word. You walk away, what was that? What was that about? Sometimes a word is about as clear as a Chinese fortune cookie. <laughs> if you ever opened up one of those little deals and pulled that little thing out. And, you know, here, here are some actual Chinese fortune cookie quotes. Land is always in the mind of the flying birds. <laughs> what is that? 
Two small jumps are better than one big leap. Wow. It's ambiguous. Digital circuits are made from analog parts. <laughs> I'm not smart enough to figure that out. Those are ambiguous words, and who knows what they mean. My point's this, that I believe Jesus is trying to speak something clearly. Jesus has something better than the ambiguousness of a Chinese fortune cookie. And so this morning or afternoon, what time is it? Afternoon. We're going to go to the Bible, if that's okay. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be in chapter 24. And we're going to look at a story of two men that were walking down a road. And for me, this text is a picture of where many Christians here in the United States are right now. They're walking down a road and they're walking with Jesus, but they really don't know what's going on. And they're a little bit bothered and a little bit confused. And Jesus is trying to explain things. And so if we can, let's read here together in Luke chapter 24. We'll start reading in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were walking with each other and talking about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem, and you don't know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man, he was a prophet, mighty in deed and in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at his tomb early in the morning, and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying that they had seen even a vision of angels, and one of them said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it to be just as the women said, but they didn't see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If we can, let's pray for a moment and just ask God this afternoon if he'd open his word for us. Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who comes alongside us and opens up and interprets your word to us. This afternoon, we humble ourselves before you, dear sir. We ask that you would open your word to us, that you would teach us this afternoon. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray and help us. We ask this, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, If we can, let's take just a moment to understand the scene that we just read about. Jesus had just been crucified, very publicly 
crucified. Even though he had prophesied that this was going to happen, it still caught his followers off guard. Even though he had prophesied that he would rise from the dead, when the women found the empty tomb, the disciples were still slow to believe that the thing Jesus had said was going to happen had actually happened. And so here, two of the disciples are walking down the road, trying to process all this, trying to figure out what actually does all this mean. Now, this is what I want you to see, that the victory of the resurrection had already been won. The the place they were in was a place of victory, but they weren't experiencing the victory because in their souls they could not see that the victory had been won. They had a paradigm that kept them from perceiving the victory that was actually theirs. Now, I want us to look at this story and extract from this and make some applications to where we are as a church and in our nation. One of the things that we read was this. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Now, it's my opinion that this is a great description of where the body of Christ is today. Walking down the road, talking about stuff, trying to figure out what is going on. We find ourselves in a moment where there is some lack of clarity, wondering what is the deal right now. Now, the interesting thing I would observe is that as they're walking down this road, they were exactly where God wanted them to be. They just didn't know it. Sometimes we're exactly where the Lord wants us. We just don't know it. Now, this idea behind this theme of uncertain times is, I want to try to make a distinction, and it's this, that to the degree that we are living in uncertain times, the times are uncertain for us, not for God. God, right now at this moment, has zero uncertainty in his soul. As he is looking down over your life, your family, your church, our nation, this world, zero turbulence in the soul of God. The turbulence is ours, not his. He's inviting us to some kind of perspective so that we can step into the peace that is his. Why is it that right now people feel like things are a little bit bad and turbulent? Now, when I hop on a plane and, and come across and come across the pond and I'm here, I tend to hear Americans talking about two things. I hear Americans talking about the economy, and I hear Americans talking about politics. These are sort of two very dominant themes that I hear a lot of chatter about. Now, concerning the economy, it's a very real deal. You're all, we're all living in that, are we not? Yes, yes we are, but the thing that I just want to gently remind you of is that this is a worldwide phenomenon. It's not just the United States. I was in Spain three weeks ago visiting a church planting couple in Madrid. If you read the newspapers at all, you understand that unemployment in Spain right now is 25%. Among youth, among those who are between the ages of 18 and 25, unemployment in Spain right now is 54.2%. Things are a little bit rattled here, but they're not that bad. 
That's Spain bad. It's not Greece. It's not Italy. It's not Spain here. Now, in addition to the economy, yes, there are these political ramifications that are going on. Tomorrow morning, we're going to take a moment as a conference to pray for the election coming up this Tuesday. We're going to pause and hold our nation before God and say, Jesus, let your kingdom come and let your will be done. But right now, there is a lot of angst in the soul of Christians in our nation. Now, that word angst, it's a good German word. It means a feeling of deep anxiety or dread, an unfocused feeling about an uncertain future. And in talking with Christians, I want to give you three reasons why I think there's a high level of angst. Number one, there's unease about the world. Number two, there's uncertainty about the future. And number three, there is a lack of clarity about what God's doing. Now, I think one of the reasons that there's so much unease right now is that Kind of like Rip Van Winkle woke up 20 years later, some of us are waking up in a world that feels very unfamiliar to us. I was chatting with my dad earlier this week about how things have changed since we started CBU. I mean, we used to record conferences on these things called cassettes. When I mention that word now to my church, I have to explain it. Now we use these things called MP3s. We used to use paper registration forms. Now you register online. Take just a moment to think about what the world, your world was like 38 years ago when CBU started. Your world had typewriters. We now live in a world that has notebook computers. Your world had banks. We now live in a world with online banks. You were born into a world with telephones. We now have these things called smartphones. You were born into a world where you did your socializing at the country club or the bridge club or the church. Or you know, now people are socializing on Facebook and Twitter and it's just a different world that we live in. Also economically the world has changed. We now live in a world, it used to be the the battle between communism and capitalism. But now we see China's experimenting with capitalism and it looks like our nation's experimenting with socialism. (laughs) What's all that about? In four years, the year 2016, The United States will be the world's second largest economy. China will be number one. For some of us, that fact is a little bit disconcerting. We don't understand that. That's a different paradigm from the one that we grew up in. For the younger generation, though, that's sort of the new normal. In 40 years, this is... um, not only economics and politics, but also morality. Um, look at this statistic right here. In 40 years, from 1970 to 20 in, 2010, out of wedlock births in the United States went from 11% of all babies born to 41%. This is the world that we live in today, that right there. This is why one of the reasons in your soul you're feeling some turbulence. 
Religious belief and affiliation is another area that has changed dramatically in our nation. You were born into a world where the two primary options were Protestant or Catholic. It's digital, it's A or B, take a choice. But we now live in a world, the United States has been called a nation that has 310 million people with 310 million religions. Religion in this nation is whatever you want it to be. Pick your own way. In 1985, there's a sociologist named Robert Bella who did a study of American society. And he found that these issues of individualism, faith, and commitment, and he studied this and he published the results in a book called Habits of the Heart. Some of you may have read that, but in the process of writing it, he interviewed a woman named Sheila. And this is what she said about her faith. I believe in God, but I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism, just my own little voice. It's just try to love yourself and be gentle with yourself. You know, I guess take care of each other. I think God would want us to take care of each other. This is the world that we live in. Sheilaism is a dominant religion in the United States. This fact causes us to feel some turbulence in our souls about this world that we're living in. And that's just one example. My point is this. We wake up like Rip Van Winkle 20 years later and we're wondering, what is this world that I'm living in? But not only is there unease about this world, there's uncertainty about the future. Some of these trends that make us uneasy about now make us uneasy about the future. There's lots of different things that we can look at, but just one that I'll mention. In the economic realm, if we think about one of the things making people feel uncertain is government statistics say this, 67% of all students right now are graduating with, gov with student debt. The average amount of debt that students are graduating with is $25,000. That's normal. Starting life with $25,000 debt. So when people are looking at the cloud, this cloud is hanging over them as they're starting life. And then we look at the debt of our own nation. As a nation, we currently own owe $16 trillion. That, that's, that's a massive number. You understand that? I'm not smart enough to understand that. That is a huge number. That's $141,000 per taxpayer in the United States that we owe. So every little baby that's born, hey, JD, welcome to the debt club, baby. Woo! Yeah, there, there's a cloud. There's a cloud of debt hanging over this nation. You better believe that. And so the good news, the good news, getting back to the story that we read, is that when we find ourselves in these kinds of moments of turbulence, Jesus does not leave us alone. What we read in our story is this, that while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. That is good news. Jesus comes close. Jesus goes with us. When the questions are the most prickly, when the circumstances are the most sour, when the road in front of us seems the loneliest, at these dark moments, Jesus shows up and he walks with us. But there's a tendency that we sometimes have to judge whether or not Jesus is with us based on the circumstances of our lives. 
The question is not whether or not Jesus is near. Jesus is with us. The question is, can we recognize what it is that Jesus is doing? Not is he with us. What's he up to? Now, as I was flying over here on Monday, um, it was hurricane day up in the northeast. And we're flying over at 38,000 feet. And even up that high, it was turbulent. It was so turbulent. This has never happened to me on a flight that they announced that they, they stopped all cabin service four hours before we landed. In other words, we're not even standing up. The stewardesses aren't doing it. They're buckled back in their seats as we're flying over the hurricane at 38,000 feet. It reminded me of the, the time the airline pilot came on and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I have some good news and some bad news. The good news is we're making excellent time. The bad news is our navigation equipment is broken and we have no idea where we are. <laughs> if your navigation equipment is broken, how do you know if Jesus is with you? The next verse explains something kind of interesting. It says this, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, I want to suggest to you today that the reason that they could not recognize him is because they, they did not have proper categories or a proper paradigm to perceive what it was that God was up to. The, the basic idea is that a paradigm is, is like a set of glasses that you put on. When you put on glasses, it can either help bring things into focus or it can distort the reality that you're looking at. Sometimes the glasses that we put on, the paradigms that we use to interpret reality actually distort further the reality that we're looking at. Jesus is inviting us to put on some kingdom glasses, the perspective of his word, so that when we look at reality, we're interpreting it in an accurate and a clear way. Let me give you some examples of reality distortion that you may have some friends once or twice that have experienced some of these or sort of thought along these lines. Here's one, one example of reality distortion that some people had the idea that the charismatic movement was normal Christianity. Let me explain what I mean. For those of us like me who came up in the charismatic movement, it was easy to assume that that's the way it was always going to be. We show up at an event and there's just such a rich, thick presence cloud of God. You could cut it with a knife, take a box home, and it's just always sort of a glory moment. In those days, you know, if we can just get people to speak in tongues, it'll be okay. If we can just get people to prophesy in church, we're going to win. If we can just get people to stop playing the organ and grab the tambourine, then Jesus is going to come back soon. And 40 years later, we're still walking forward. I remember being at a pastor's conference over at Ridgecrest. And a man was speaking, and he stood up, and he said a very provocative statement. This was in about the year 1992. And he stood up, and he said, the charismatic movement is over. Now, in the room of charismatic pastors, <laughs> that statement went over like a lead balloon. And it fell down there somewhere. But as I was standing back observing, historically, that was probably an accurate statement. 
Christian historian Vincent Sinan places the high water mark of the charismatic movement in the year 1977. It was approximately a 30-year movement from about 1960 to about 1990. And rather than seeing it as one step along the way, some Christians interpreted that as the thing. And if you interpreted that as the thing, once that's over, you find in your life that you're in a very disoriented place. Whereas if that was a step and there are other steps, we keep walking with Jesus down the road. God invites us forward. And so this is what Jesus told them. He said this, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. When Jesus heard what they were talking about, he was so frustrated because they were slow to believe what was written. It was in the Bible, it was right there in front of them, and they could not see it. Jesus was operating from a different paradigm than the one that they were operating on. Now, I want to contrast two different paradigms with you here. This is the paradigm that they were using. It goes like this. Previous expectation plus actual experience equals distress and confusion. So if we find ourselves in a place of distress and confusion, it's because our experience and our expectation are somehow out of whack. But the Jesus paradigm went like this. This is what he introduced to them. Start with what is written. Let what is written create your expectations. And then what is written is what interprets reality. What I'm trying to hold before you today is this, that to the degree Christians are discouraged and confused about what's going on in the world is because they have lost sight of understanding what God has written in his word. Clarity is a function of the relationship between expectations and reality. When those two get out of kilter, we end up in a somewhat confused place. And so one of the ways that God invites us forward is, as Jim was outlining this morning, sometimes it's really simple stuff. Sometimes it's as simple as going back to things like praying and reading the Bible. Now, there are different times where in our in the history of these last few few years, people have, have gotten into just odd perspectives. And I know no one here would have done that, but I'm mentioning these just to illustrate the point. For example, one was that in, in 1988, a guy named Edgar Quisnut wrote a book called 88 Reasons that Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. Uh, now, he is basing that on the, the scripture Israel and the, the fig tree and generation is 40. Israel's a nation in 48. 48 plus 40 is 88. So Jesus has to come back by 1988. And he wrote a book and lots and lots of people bought it. And so using that, that one little sort of way of interpreting the Bible, he landed at a place that was actually quite divergent from God's reality. And so if we're, if we're not in tune with what God has written and said, yes, it's going to distort what we're, what we're thinking and what we're doing. Another example is that a second revival is just around the corner. Now, I want to be very delicate with this. I want to be very gentle. Um, 
how many of you have prayed for revival in your life, in your church, in your family? Raise your hand if you've ever prayed for revival. I have too. I will put my name on that list. Again, going back to Ridgecrest, I remember sitting at a, at a conference and a man, um, a man took some, some time and in his sermon he was outlining this is what the next move of God is going to look like. And I remember sitting there as a young man saying, boy, this sounds really cool. I hope that God is going to do what this guy says because I want to get in on that. Now, 20 years later, that's not how the deal played out, but it was a fun thing to listen to. Now, my, my, my point is this, that if, if that perspective dictated my expectations, I would have ended up as a very disillusioned person. We have to be careful in what we embrace as our expectations. The example that I use, and this is, this is just a, a little aside, if you want to understand how, how I navigate the Christian life, it's like this. Imagine if you, there, there's a, back in history they had Greek triremes. If you've ever watched Ben-Hur when he was a slave on the ship, he's down there rowing along. That was a, a Roman warship. And, Think about this. There, there's a sail that's up here, and then underneath the sail, there's people rowing on the oars. And if you only have a sail, the only time that you're going to move is when there's wind. What we've heard outlined so far in this conference is this question, how do you live when the wind isn't blowing? You learn how to work the oars. The oars of prayer the oars of reading the Bible, the oars of evangelism, the oars of discipleship, the oars of faithfulness in relationship and community. These foundational things are what keep us going between the moments of wind. Another perspective that probably not you, but maybe you've had friends that stumbled into this, it's this, that obedience always brings God's blessing. Maybe you've heard somebody somewhere who thought that once. I know you wouldn't have, but in some ways, actually, yes, it does. But it depends on what you mean by blessing. For example, the Apostle Paul. Do you think he was a blessed man? Yes. Paul? Yeah. You know, was he an obedient man? Yeah, I think so. He, when he was preaching to King Agrippa, he said, I was not obedient to the heavenly vision. So yes, he was obedient, but was he blessed? Yes, he was blessed, but what did blessing look like in his life? Wow, you want Paul's life? I don't think so, but wow, that's blessing. When he's writing to the Philippians, this is what he wrote. He said, look, I'm not speaking out of need because I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to live low. I know how to abound. I know in every circumstance I've learned the secret of facing plenty and facing hunger, of having abundance and having need. Blessing in Paul's life was walking through the stuff. Now, if you have a perspective, though, that says, if I'm obedient, I'll always be blessed and not have to go through stuff. When you end up going through stuff, your whole compass is going to go haywire. The Lord's inviting us to a place where our compass is not going haywire. So the point that I'm, going to tr that I'm just trying to make here is that the Lord 
wants us to understand what he said in his word so that we can be in touch with what God is doing. Now, the specific thing that Jesus told the disciples is this, that they were slow to believe what the prophets had spoken. Now, let's just pause for a moment because Jesus did speak prophetically. What are some of the things that Jesus prophesied? It's an interesting thing. Go look at the predictions Jesus made, how Jesus prophesied over his disciples. Now, prophecy, we're taught, is for our encouragement. Were you encouraged this morning as Jim was prophesying? I was. I mean, I know some of the stories, and I was like, wow, Jesus just read their mail, and it was encouraging. Now, Jesus, though, because he was Jesus, he was a little bit edgier with his prophecies. Sometimes, this is what he prophesied to his disciples. If they persecuted me, that's not real encouraging, Jesus. Can you go to the next one on your Rolodex? Can I trade in that prophecy, Jesus? Now, most of us don't have a theology of persecution. Most of us don't, don't even have a place for that in our Christian paradigm. Now, I'm not talking about that we should live with a martyr's complex. I'm saying that the plan of God for our lives is much deeper and profound than we sometimes give him credit for having. And I'm saying that in terms of global Christianity, life here in the United States actually, even now, is pretty comfortable. Here's a story that I bumped into just, just this past week. This is from Sierra Leone. Listen to this. For many years, several remote villages in northern Sierra Leone have been controlled by militant Muslims. And no churches existed. But recent evangelistic efforts resulted in the conversion of a number of Muslims to the Christian faith. Village leaders, angered by the growth of Christianity, have threatened to harm evangelists if they don't stay out of their villages. In one village, more than 300 people converted to Christianity, including the village chieftain. Muslims in the village thought that it was disgraceful that the chieftain had turned his back on the holy prophet Muhammad, and so they elected their own leader. So some of the Muslims, because of this, began attacking Christians as they, were, as they were walking to their farms. And the point I'm trying to make is this. If you're walking on the way to your farm and you get attacked, it doesn't mean that Jesus isn't with you. If you're walking to your farm and you get attacked, it doesn't mean that Jesus has left you. It means that Jesus is an accurate prophet. Now, look at the next thing Jesus says. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? In other words, it was the purpose of the cross. It was God intentionally sent Jesus to the cross. What a beautiful thing. We're standing here worshiping under this cross. Now, look at this next picture here. This is the very first drawing of the cross. I know it's hard to see on this slide, but this is the very first physical drawing of the cross in human history. This is from approximately the year A.D. 250. This is a bit of graffiti that was carved into a wall on the Palatine Hill in Rome. Now, it shows a man on a cross, 
and another man worshiping the man on the cross, but the man on the cross has the head of a donkey. And the inscription underneath it says, Alexamenos of Betetheon, which means Alexander worships God. Now, the idea that a god would be crucified was foolishness to the Greco-Roman world. And to the Jews, it was just a bunch of foolishness. That uh, the, the Messiah would be crucified as an oxymoron. And so whoever drew this was mocking the resurrection, or the crucifixion, mocking this Christian message that God would actually come and die. But Jesus was reminding these disciples on the road to Emmaus, this thing called the cross was absolutely necessary. The church of Jesus never outgrows the cross. So if we just read what Jesus is saying to his disciples, it'll help us. Now, all of that, all of that was introduction to make this point. It's very important that we learn how to get God's perspective. Now, as I close, I want to give you, if I can, five stones. Do you remember when David went to fight Goliath? He went down to the river, and he picked up five smooth stones. When you're walking through a time of fog, you need to be able to reach into your pocket and feel some stones of permanence, some things that never change regardless of the circumstances that are going on in your life. So I want to give you five stones of clarity that are always permanently true, five things that Jesus is always doing regardless of what else is going on in the world. All right, here we go. Stone number one, Jesus is always advancing his kingdom. In Acts, the way this reads is the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. God is winning. He's always winning. Every day, every year, every month, every nation, Jesus is winning. Sometimes we don't perceive his victory, but Jesus is always advancing his kingdom. And he invites us to participate. That's why we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. But he's always doing this. Now, one of the reasons that it's hard for us to see is just the world that we live in. Again, it's changed. You were born into a world where most of the Christians were in the northern hemisphere. That's not true anymore. Now most Christians are in the global south. The gospel is growing like bonkers in Latin America. The gospel is growing like bonkers in Africa and all over Asia. God is winning in dramatic ways. I mean, just in, in June, I was in the city of Dubai. In the heart of a Muslim nation, I was at a conference of 1,800 Christians in the heart of Dubai, hearing the Bible preached, hearing Jesus being worshipped, Christians celebrating in the middle of a Muslim nation. That is God flexing his muscles, saying, I am going to win. Little moments of turbulence to God, he don't feel it. God is advancing his kingdom. Um, All right, stone number two. He's always building his church. Jesus said, I will build my church. And it's going to be a prevailing church. Now, this one's a little bit tricky. Bob opened up for us last night. Sometimes relationships are painful. 
some of the prophecies this morning, sometimes the place that should be the greatest safety ends up a place of frustration and hurt. We end up being hurt by those that we care about and get close to. Church can be a tricky thing. But the fact that it's sometimes tricky doesn't mean Jesus has given up on it. He's still building it. He's still working it. He's still pushing his deal forward. Some of you who have been here in part of CBU for a number of years remember in the early 90s when we invested heavily in Ukraine. Here's Dean Simpson sitting right up here. We went together in May of 1990 to a city called Lviv, which is at that time part of the Soviet Union. And we, you know, God opened an amazing door. We went in sharing the gospel and just sort of kept following Jesus. And several years later, we've got eight churches there now. I was just there four weeks ago and this Dean, encouraging thing for you. These churches are still there. They're still preaching the gospel. People are still getting filled with the Holy Spirit. The word of God is growing. The churches are growing. The gospel is advancing. Jesus is building his church in Ukraine. Jesus is always building his church. It might, your church might go through momentary fluctuations. At the end of the day, Jesus is winning with his church. Stone number three, he said this, he's always drawing people to himself. If I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. One of my favorite scriptures is in Acts chapter 16 where you know, Paul was Ministering, and the Bible says it's just the most precious scripture. It says this The Lord opened Lydia's heart to believe the words Paul was saying. God broke in and opened Lydia's heart. You know, we sang earlier that we're, the word of our testimony is something God uses. It's how we stand against the devil. And, you know, it may be, it may have been a while since you heard the testimony of somebody coming to Jesus. It, it might have been a while in your church since that's happened. And so I thought, wow, this is something that Jesus is always doing. He's always drawing people to himself. And so I want to give you just an opportunity to hear a story of somebody that Jesus recently brought to himself. Rory, would you come up and just take a moment and tell us... Tell us your story. Absolutely. Well, it was six years ago, so, you know, within the realms of recentness. Um, so, um, I, uh, about six years ago, July 2006, I was invited to play drums in a church in Edinburgh that was planted by uh, a bunch of what I perceived as crazy American evangelicals, uh, the leader of which is Tom. And um, so, <laughs> they invited me to come and play drums in this church. I went to go and play as a total atheist. Uh, quite an evangelical atheist, actually. Um, and um, so I was invited to go and play drums in this church. And my perception of what the church was going to be was slightly different. I'd seen Sister Act and thought they would be a lot like that. Um, <laughs> Tom's not very much like Whoopi Goldberg, thankfully. Um, but um, so I got, I got invited to play drums in this church and I went along and I would play each week. And, um, and then every week I sat and I heard the gospel. I just heard the gospel week after week after week. And it took a number of weeks before I actually really paid attention and listened. Um, but then after I started to pay attention, it was almost like I went away each week honestly thinking that, that Tom or some of the other pastors had, insi had insider information because it just seemed to be so right on 
at me. Like, it just seemed to hit me in the heart week after week after week. So, started in July, um, the following December, so four, five months later, um, I was driving back to my university, which was around two and a half hours away. Um, and I was driving uh, just by myself. It was a cold, wet night uh, in December. And um, as I was driving along, these two large buses came up onto the road. It was a main road, so it was 70 miles an hour sort of thing. I was probably doing 80, if I'm being honest. Um, these two buses came on, and uh, so I pulled them to the next lane to let them, on, to, to let them over and started to drive past them. And uh, I was halfway up, uh, halfway along the length of the first bus. And I'm in the car by myself, radio was off, phone, I don't think I had one. Um, and then I heard, just clear as day, slow down to 50. Slow down to 50. And this is just crazy to me because, you know, I have no concept of, of God. I've been hearing the gospel every week, but nothing, nothing had clicked, nothing had dropped. I was still resistant. Um, so I kind of just shook it off and kept on going. Then I heard it again, this time really stern. It shook me. Like, it made me scared. It made me scared. And I heard again, slow down to 50. So just in my fear, I just put my foot on the brake and I watched the dial. The speedometer just sort of dropped down to 50. And as it hit 50, the bus I was going past pulled out to where I'd just been. They hadn't seen me. And missed the, I missed the back end of the bus by probably this much, maybe a metre or two. And... So my immediate response at that point is just to start yelling and screaming at this God that until that moment I hadn't actually believed in. Um, so I just, I, I went crazy just screaming at him and still resisted. I just, I tried to rationalize it for days. I tried to rationalize it. And then a couple of nights later in my, um, about four in the morning, I was woken up from my sleep by just, I can only describe it as the presence of God. I was just pinned to my bed. I couldn't move. It was like electric currents flowing through my whole body. And I was like paralyzed. I just couldn't move. And again, I heard that voice. And he was just going, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here just repeatedly. I have no idea how long it lasted for. It could have been a minute. It could have been 45 minutes. I have no idea. Um, and so I resisted for another couple of days, trying to rationalize exactly what had happened until um, the end of that week, I was driving back down to go and, uh, to go and work in Edinburgh and, and go to church. And um, I just broke. <laughs> I just broke. I was like, okay, God, here you go. And uh, repented, gave my life to Jesus, and things just flipped on their head. It was a paradigm shift. It was a paradigm shift. And uh, then I changed my evangelism from atheism to uh, preaching Jesus. Um, <laughs> which rubbed quite a lot of my fellow evangelical atheists up the wrong way, but, but absolutely worth it. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Amen. We overcome the evil one. The word of our testimony. And, you know, Roy, thank you for sharing that. And there are so many stories. I mean, each one of us has a story. The fact that you're here today, your life is a story. You know, some of you, you look at your own life and you think, you know, my life is not much or whatever. No, it's beautiful. The story of what God has done in your life. It may not be as dramatic as missing the bus and all that, but it's absolutely beautiful. Our God is still in the business of drawing people to himself. Even atheists, you know, the funny thing, you know, Roy left this off when we, when we first hired. Now, I remember was talking with... Um, this actually goes back to Ukraine. When we were planning a church in Ukraine, I got a phone call from our pastor in Ternopil one day. He said, Tom, I, I fired the whole worship team. 
I was like, really? That's kind of radical. That's not very nice, is it? He said, well, no, it's not nice, but they were bad. And they, father was getting a bad reputation just because they were playing in a mediocre way. And our, God, our father is excellent. And so, well, what did you do when, since you fired all them? He said, well, I went out and I hired a bunch of studio musicians. I was like, well, are they saved? No. He said, I do the singing, but I, I've got this, this, this band over here that I hired, and our music is really good now. And so within six months, every one of them got saved. And so fast forward 10 years later, we're in Scotland, and just our, our worship leader, just him up there with his acoustic guitar every Sunday. I was like, you know, why don't we do a band? He said, well, we don't have a band. So we'll hire a band. And so he advertised, and so Rory answered the advertisement for a drummer, and I remember going into church, and it was the funniest thing. The worship team would be up there praying, and Rory would be out at the, the back just sort of wandering around and just like, you know, but, but eventually I saw him sort of edging closer, and, you know, the, one day come to church, and he's over there praying with them, and, you know, that's the God that we serve. Even hiring musicians, he's drawing people to himself. All right. Smooth stone number four, something God is always doing in your life. He's always conforming you to the image of his son. Why do we still need to come here and hear Bob Mumford peel our grape? Because we don't yet look like Jesus, do we? There's still some work to be done. Jesus is a divine Michelangelo. He has these sculpting tools in his hand that we learned last night. They're called life labs. He looks at you and he looks at Jesus. Where he sees character divergences between you and Jesus. He says, aha, I'm going after that. Because he has predestined that you will look like Jesus. Jesus is the model and he's shaping us into his image. All right, smooth stone number five. Jesus is always advancing his gospel. Jesus said this, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Now what I want you to see here as we go back to this story is that Jesus brought these disciples on the road to Emmaus right back to the gospel. He said this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Look at that. He brought all the scriptures right back to himself. The Bible is about Jesus. It's the story of Jesus. The Bible is the gospel. It's the story of what God has done to break into human history and bring us to himself. In the moment of the deepest confusion that these men had ever felt, Jesus brings them right back to the gospel, the story of who Jesus is, what he did, and how we are saved. Now, to the, to the degree that we're participating in this thing called the gospel, we're beginning to rescue our father's reputation. Because it all goes back to his son and what 
his son has done. Now these five stones that I've just given you, these are not temporary stones. These are not seasonal stones. These are five stones for you to put in your bag so that when the fog is so thick that you cannot see, you reach your hand down into that bag and you fill these five stones and you know these stones are there. This is what God is doing whether or not I can see it. Some of you are going through a fog right now and the Lord's coming to you and saying, I'm with you. I'm with you. Just like these two guys walking down this road to Emmaus, Jesus is walking right beside you. He's encouraging you. He's bringing you back to his gospel to remind you this is what he's done for you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He's with you right now. If we can, I'd like us to go to God in prayer and just ask God to seal his word in our hearts. You know, we sang this a little bit earlier. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let's come to God in just a moment of prayer. Let's humble ourselves before God. Hmm. Lord Jesus, we, Lord, we admit that there are days and moments, even today in some of our lives, that, Lord, we're like these two fellows on the road to Emmaus. We're talking, we're, we're struggling, we're wrestling, and somehow we've, we've got a paradigm and it's just not working. We're, we're not able to understand this world that we've woken up in, not able to completely understand what it is that you're doing. Father, for everyone here right now at this moment who is troubled in their soul, who's experiencing some kind of life turbulence, God, I'm asking, Lord, I'm asking in Jesus' name that you would, that you would grant them right now some kind of kingdom glasses, Lord, some ability to perceive, some ability to see. Lord, most of all, that Jesus, you said you'd never leave us or forsake us. Sometimes it feels like you're distant, but you're not. Sometimes we, we can't see you, but you're there. Lord, I'm asking in Jesus' name that right now that you would come by your spirit. That you would restore, that you would refresh, that you would encourage. Lord, and especially for those who have been through a deeply turbulent moment. Oh God, I'm asking that you would bring peace, that you'd bring stability. Oh God, that you would bring a perspective of health. Lord, I pray that as Jesus brought these two disciples back to what the scripture said about him, that you would bring us back, oh God, that we could look at you Lord, that whatever else is going on, that we would be able to declare how great is our God. How great is our God. Just declare that right now over your life, over your family, 
over your marriage, over your business, over these areas where the turbulence has been so strong you've wanted to throw in the towel and here Jesus is saying, no, I'm with you. Declare God's greatness. Oh Lord, you are great. You are mighty. You are strong. Praise you, Lord Jesus. Praise you, God. You know, while we're in this moment, if we can, just, if we could sing that song, How Great Is Our God, just as a, as a declaration of this is who God is in our lives. It's a permanent stone, God's greatness, that never, ever quakes or changes. Our God is great. <laughs>